Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude. And entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, which is awesome. It's super awesome. It's about to get loaded up with a lot of photos that were taken yesterday. Ooh. At graveyards. Oh, spooky, spooky. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 16, Fashion and Function. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs and Official True Crime Creative. Woo! Yeehaw! So how's it going? It's pretty good, pretty good. How's it going with you? It's been a week. I don't know. It's it's fine. It's been a week on Tuesday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a week yeah uh i i don't know what is time um, anymore it doesn't exist yeah except according to my cats yes who are now as if on cue singing in chorus yep the song of their people just letting indeed. you know yeah. indeed <laughs> uh my creepy basement that you have certainly Ooh. heard of before yes is doing additional creepy things at the moment oh for reasons unclear the there are two doors and a bricked off tunnel entrance um that are just what you see when you hit the bottom of the stairs that is mm -hmm. not even going into it and the bricked-off tunnel entrance is fine, but That's the two good. doors keep unlocking and cracking themselves open. Oh. What, 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 what's on the other side of the doors? Well, um, the boilers are on the other side of one door. Okay. And tunnels oh. are on the other side of the other one um underground railroad tunnels uh, oh so, uh yeah and like this thing padlocks from the outside oh <laughs> yeah like, there's something afoot yeah and i mean it, it's probably just one of the guys from the bar 
who didn't relock it after doing the trash or something. I don't know. Um, but I went down there a couple days ago and the door was ever so slightly open, the one that leads to the tunnels. Mm -hmm. And then I went down again the next day and I don't usually go down there. Usually I make Jeremy go down there because I don't (laughs) like it down there. And it was all the way open then. Wow. And it's like, I do not need any of this nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Not- At least the mysterious phone didn't ring. Oh, my. See? I, oh, like half of me would want it to. And the other half of me is like, nope. It's. Well, I don't know where it is. <laughs> I never did find it. I just. Oh, heard my it. goodness. Um. I mean, I also did not go looking for it, right. to be clear. Kiss I have only gone willingly into that area once. Kiss SSDGM. I mean. <laughs> it's a terrifying basement. At some point, I will have to FaceTime with you and just show you what the basement looks like. I had one of those. In fact, uh, we called it the Blur Witch Basement. Uh, because it reminded me of the ending of Blair Witch. Um, ah. It was, uh, we would find, we would find at least a dead bird a week down there. We yeah. had no idea how they were getting in. It was just, there was so much crazy pants with it. Just, but. I mean, if it was up to code or <laughs> if it was at least pretending to yeah. adhere to any sort of code, I know how the birds got in, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing not so much because we were like, "Why is our electric bill so high?" And it was really weird. And we'd call the landlord. We're like, "We think that we're crosswired, and we're paying for some of the guys upstairs." And he'd be like, "No, no, 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 no." And so one day I was like, "Fuck this!" And I had my roommate go stand on the street. It was during a Packer game. And I went down in the basement and I shut our fucking power off and the power went out upstairs and one of them came flying down the stairs because Packer game. And I looked at him like, what's wrong? Power off. He was like, oh, no, I just need to switch my laundry. And I was like, oh, you're busted, motherfucker. (laughs) I know. I know what you've been doing. (laughs) I was so mad. That's nasty. Yeah. So I'm not sure it was up to code. Well, I I assume it was a furnace vent. Probably. But, um, uh-uh. But I do love that, uh, it is August. Which means I it's going to start to get cooler. And our people season has arrived. <laughs> just... I am all in on spooky season yes. already. I even have my spooky season shirt on. Uh, I love it. Love it, love yeah. it. It, for for those not actually seeing me on video, so you know everybody but Natalie, uh, <laughs> it says gloom where you're planted. Yes. Yes. Uh, I had some bonding time with my youngest yesterday. Ooh. We got giant, being the somewhat basic bitches we are, we got giant jugs of iced coffee. Hell yes, you did. And then we went to approximately. Five or six different graveyards with our Find a Grave app to see if we could fill some requests for people that were missing photos and stuff like that. Cool. One of the which um, 
was literally in a group of trees through a cornfield <laughs> behind like the county property and it was heartbreaking because it was just a fenced grass area Aww. with a plaque it was it was the poorhouse and asylum cemetery. i was gonna ask if it was um but there was a, no a workhouse yeah no graves no markers just uh oh not even numbers no, there was nothing. It was just oh. literally just grass. There was nothing. And, and I know that that is super common, but oh, that it was breaks my heart every time. And then, so. I mean, the numbers break my heart. Right. And then, yeah, so nothing, just a fence and grass. And then this big memorial plaque that literally just had lists of names. And it didn't even have a death date for them, it just had a year. And some of them, like maybe a few of them had a birth year, but there was no specific, you know, month or day. It was just heartbreaking. And then there oh, was um, the cemetery close to us. There were these giant, elaborate headstones for babies that were, one was nine days old. Another was like 26 days old. And it was so... I guess eye-opening to yeah. both my you daughter really and I. You could really see the wealth disparity there, right? And that was back. We're talking the eighteen mm-hmm. hundreds ish. Yeah. And I mean, the memorial to the memorials to the babies isn't the wrong thing to do, right? It's not. But not respecting the dignity of the dead who are poorer right. is the wrong thing to do. Um. But then we also, I found one of my favorite new um, headstones. It has, like, uh, disco balls on it. <laughs> oh, I saw that photo. <laughs> so like, amazing. what? I, it, it's, like, the tackiest late 70s, early 80s right? amazingness. And I, I just want someone to put clandestine um, solar-powered led lights underneath so at dark that shit lights up (laughs) yes 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 um one of the smaller ones we were at it was so funny because she um so she was way on one end of it and i was on the other end of it and it looked like um like i couldn't tell if it was the entrance to like an actual tomb situation or if it was they just created a giant cement box and the the coffin wasn't actually buried but just laid on top and then entombed in with this concrete box thing she's oh yeah over- it can go either way right she's a, over there um, and she's safe like, there was like a the with the name and stuff was she's like mom why are there holes i'm like so they can breathe and she's like what <laughs> like, no not really i'm like but you know bodies produce gases when they <laughs> she was just like i don't know um one of those smaller cemeteries had a bench that said Cityspell on it. <laughs> oh my goodness. My mother, I think I told you, texted me um, from the cemetery once yes. that, with a picture of a bench saying that she wanted one. Yeah. She went and picked that shit out herself. Right, exactly. You got it. But so it was I don't want to make her mad. Um, I won't pick the right shade of pink marble. Right. So we, it, was, it was fun, which sounds weird. Um, 
But it was that also does not like, sound weird. It sounds <laughs> terribly interesting yeah, to me. It was. It was very cool. To, and then we discovered, like, through Find a Grave, that there's so many more cemeteries in town than I even realized that we had. So we're going to do another trip out to a few more. Um, we did find one. There's a couple that had, like, spelling errors in the requests. So we're like, that's not that person. There was, like, a six-year-old boy that died in a tornado um mm. just the, the babies always break my heart they just they always do like i and there was some poor woman who had um four children die and there was one of the children like actually it was five children all together and one of them was missing the photo of the headstone the other four were there but and it was actually the really tall pillared ones oh. um I love the ones with photos on the headstones. I like to be able to look at the person. Yeah. And appreciate that there is a human being. Yeah. Who lived a life there. Um, I'm also really impressed when, like, daguerreotypes survive that long. Yes, yes, yes. In tombstones. But... So yeah, that was our, hey, it's spooky, and we can do some good by helping people find, you know, their loved ones, and, uh, you know, some cardio in there, you're walking, uh, although it's yeah. Wisconsin, so uh, the later it got, the more the mosquitoes came out. And, World uh, of no! Yeah, youngest got a, a bite right on her eyelid. <laughs> she was sick. Wow, so, that yeah. sucks. <laughs> That's uh, that was my day yesterday. That sounds largely delightful and also very helpful. Yeah, I try. All right. So yeah. Um, well, uh, speaking of delightful things. Yes. Do you know who is delightful? Uh, who? Ah, uh, our fantastic curiosity shop members over on Patreon. It's true. We appreciate you and love you beyond words. Um, So much. Yep. And if you join us, this is the part right here where we give you like a totally normal and not at all creepy welcome. So everybody gets to know that you're part of the Curiosity Shop. And now that summer's winding down, we got deadlines not being so looming. We've got some really fun new things I think that are going to be coming your way. So uh, it's if, true. Oh, and we shot. have a patron story that you don't even know about yet. <gasps> shut up! I love patron stories. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It, it's going to be a future patron story because Ooh. it's elaborate. Ooh, and there yes. are lots of photos. Oh, I'm so excited! Yeah. But yeah, you guys are like the best. So good. We love you. Absolutely. Yes. And we would totally also, for the record, go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. And I just realized that that implies that there are also hidden old churches in the woods, Mm. since graveyards are only attached to churches. Indeed. Um, So I guess we're going full creepy. Indeed. And, and I, I feel great about that. Also, when you join... Very Watcher in the Woods. Yes. 
When you join, you totally get a you get access to a huge backlog of patron only episodes, um, including next week where we talk the right to remain spooky. It's true. <laughs> if you ever wanted to buy a haunted house, um, well, it turns out there are some rules, mm-hmm. actual legal ones. <laughs> Indeed. Right. So yeah, give us. Give us a try. Check us out. Please do. Indeed. The more the merrier. Spookier. Creepier. Craftier. Kookier. (laughs) Delightful. Yes. (laughs) So, if you are a Patreon member, you know that I've been learning French for the last month and a half. So I may someday be able to better research the monocle, an amazing pre-World War II lesbian barbarist, because, well, me. (laughs) That is an entirely worthwhile pursuit. This is what I'm saying. Uh, Now, when you think of France, you probably think of love, macaron, butter and cream and everything, brooding mods and berets, and the Eiffel Tower. Yep, pretty much. But did you know that the Eiffel Tower was built as a science lab? No. Today, I'm going to tell you all about it. Well, I part want about to it. know all about it. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> part about it, not all about it, because, ooh, girl, it's a big topic. Um, okay, fine. So, but when. Oh, science lab. Yes. Huh. So exciting. Uh, when Gustav Eiffel's sperm. Designed the tower as the entrance for Paris World's Fair of 1889, which also celebrated the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution. Well. People thought he was mad. Uh, The iron structure, like, was a huge contrast to the historic stone buildings of Paris and was pretty much deemed hideous. Uh, Well. (laughs) What's more, at 300 meters, which is 984 feet for us Americans, yeah. uh, it would become the tallest structure in the world, which just drove even more attention to it. Uh, oh. So, but why would they even listen to this guy then in the first place? Well, perhaps because he's earned his, uh, he's earned it with many famous designs, including the internal structure of the Statue of Liberty. That I did know. Uh, so he had quite a bit of clout Which is cool. Him. It is If very you've cool. ever been inside, especially if you've ever gotten to go up into the torch, which yes. I have, and it's That's very cool. Very awesome. Um, I've not gone into the torch, but I have gone in. It's, and it is, though that staircase is yes. rickety as hell. It's yeah. good that yeah. they don't mm. let that happen anymore. Yes. So even with his clout, though, clout. <laughs> only goes so far all right there was so much uproar over it that he was only able to build it with a 20-year concession from the city of paris to use the land that it was built on (laughs) as it was inaugurated in 1889 that meant that after like 1909 the paris city council could decide to have it completely torn down and removed and many made it super clear that that's what they intended to do 300 i mean they actually gave it longer than i would expect them to give it indeed indeed that 20 years is still a substantial amount of time um 
300 prominent artists and writers publicly expressed their hatred for the Iron Giant. In a petition... I actually don't like it either. (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. And you might like it after this. Uh, Okay. In a petition published just as construction was beginning in the French newspaper Le Temps, the group referred to the tower as a giddy, ridiculous tower dominating Paris like a gigantic black smokestack. Charles... That's not how I would describe it, <laughs> but okay. Charles Marie Georges Huseman, a French novelist of the time, declared that it is hard to imagine that people will allow such a building to stay. Now... <laughs> The Eiffel. French are so dramatic. Right. So, très dramatique. <laughs> now, Eiffel knew this going in, and he had a plan. Mm-hmm. One that was as off the wall and as brilliant as the design itself. If he could link the tower to important research, he reasoned that no one would dare to take it down. So he would make it a grand laboratory for science. What that kind is of... an interesting train of thought. I don't think it's where I would have gone. Right? Uh, so areas of research would include weather as well as the brand new fields of powered flight and radio communications. Oh, I see. It will be an observatory and a laboratory such as science has never seen or never had at its disposal. Eiffel bragged in 1889. Spoiler alert, as it is still standing, his plan worked. But I think that he uh, exceeded even like his own expectations on this. So how did Eiffel manage to pull all this off? Well, for starters, the design itself lends it to exactly the areas of science that he knew would be invaluable to advance in. It is also a study in physics itself. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to a very sciencey paper about it. Basically, there's a lot of torque involved. Uh, balancing the torque of the wind with the torque of the metal, which means that it it's built to sway if needed, um, which is pretty remarkable for that time uh, using iron and that size. Um, wow. So that I is kind of cool. I get the physics behind it because um, I lived in the Bay Area and I've been on the Bay Bridge, which is far more frightening and awe-striking than the Golden Ooh. Gate, but the Golden Gate gets all the credit for some reason. Um, and I've been on it when they sway and try to not have, like, a complete panic attack because I know they're doing what they need to do should there be, like, an earthquake or just with yeah. the winds and everything. But yeah, the still... Mackinac Bridge is also Whew, it's still, uh, very anxiety-inducing. Yeah, I so, don't like it. Just that that in and of itself, amazing. Now, to make it known um, also of his goal, he engraved the names of 72 scientists on the borders of each of the four sides of the tower. I'm going to spare you me butchering 72 French names and okay. instead just leave you a link in the show notes for you to click <laughs> on and read at will. Um, basically, his goal was to pay homage to the men of science at the time. In reality, yeah. he was kind of kiss- kissing some ass to try to get them to, you know, 
also be interested in in uh, the science. Don't destroy my art. <laughs> yeah, come do science here. Uh, your name's on the building. You gotta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's very crafty. He's very crafty. Indeed. Like he was. He was full on. He had a plan, man. Uh, now, at the beginning of the century, uh, one of the painting campaigns, because I believe it's, oh gosh, I want to say it's every seven years, the entire thing is painted, um, and part of it's upkeep, and it uses like 60 tons of paint, it's crazy pants, um, but somebody accidentally painted over all the names, um, and they, <laughs> but they were restored sometime in like 1986 or 87. Now, work on huh. the foundation started on the 28th of january 1887 and it took two years two months and five days using 7500 tons of iron and 2.5 million rivets to complete the tower that seems like a long time but it was pretty lightning quick like it's the quickness that it was assembled is also another thing that's like holy cow that is in the this building is amazing column during the fair 1,953,122 visitors came to see the tower fun fact allegedly the tower's first official visitors were the british royal family and buffalo bill Uh, it is also to this date the most visited paid landmark uh in the world Hmm. and i want to say over 250 million people have visited it uh once designed and built and opened he wasted like approximately zero freaking time like getting going here scientific research began the very day after the tower opened to the public on may 6 1889 he installed a web Right. He installed. He was not waiting. Uh, He installed a weather station on the tower's third and highest floor. He connected instruments by wire to the French Weather Bureau in Paris. Cool. With these, he was able to measure wind speed and air pressure. Also, when it first opened, there was the lifts were not working. I believe it was five weeks later that the lifts would actually work. So for people to visit the top, it was like. 1307 stairs and i'm like that's a whole lot of cardio man like i at cardio and i'm afraid of heights so that would not have happened um but people were still just in awe of it and and loved it um i just what protection (laughs) measures were in place for those people doing uh, right uh it, I mean, having been on the stairs in the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> right. I feel like that shit's not all that solid. <laughs> eh, questionable. Yeah, I agree. Ah, in the er, in its earliest days, a giant manometer was installed, and uh, a manometer is a device that measures the pressure of gases or liquid. It consists of a U-shaped tube containing our friend Mercury. Or another <laughs> liquid at the bottom. And then uh, one end of the U is open to the air. The other end is sealed off. And the difference in the height of the liquid in the two parts of the U is a measure of the pressure of the air or liquid bearing yeah. down on the open end. By 1900, manometers were common. But the tower's enormous one 
stretched from its very summit to its base. So the length of the tube enabled scientists to measure pressures 400 times greater than at sea level. And until then, no one had been able to measure pressures that high. Wow. That's neat. Right? French scientists um, already had succeeded. That's a lot of mercury. That is a lot of mercury. (laughs) That's a lot of potential fatalness, too. Um, French scientists already had succeeded in measuring temperatures to an accuracy of one hundredth of a degree Celsius, but no one had tried to put those recordings in any kind of meaningful chart or graph, I guess. According to hmm. Joseph Harris, author of The Towerless Tower, Eiffel was the first one to do so. Which seems like it would have been... That's interesting. Right? Like, why wouldn't you not have charted that shit from the beginning? But hey, go Eiffel. Uh- yeah, it does seem like... How do you hmm. record it, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so from 1903 to 1912, Eiffel used his own money to publish charts and weather maps. Harris explains that these helped the French Weather Bureau adopt a more scientific approach to weather measurements. The tower also pay, uh, played a pivotal role in the emerging field of aerodynamics. Eiffel had first seriously considered the effects of the wind as he began designing the building, obviously. And he did fear that a strong air current could, you know, affect the structure, maybe even toppling it. Um, And as I mentioned before, that was a major issue for him to work through before construction began. He was also interested in aviation, though. In 1903, the Wright brothers piloted the first motorized airplane and Eiffel began studying the motion of objects racing down a cable from the tower's second floor that same year. He sent objects of different shapes down this 115 meter, which is 377 feet, cable. Wires Hmm. linked these objects to recording devices that then measured the speed of the objects and the pressure of the air along the direction of travel. Some of the objects that Eiffel studied moved as fast as 144 kilometers, which is 89 miles per hour, which is faster than any of the early aircraft. Interesting. Scientific American reported on one of the earlier experiments in its March 19, 1904 issue. A heavy cylinder kept by a cone sped down the cable in just five seconds. Eiffel had installed a flat plate in the front of the cylinder. So during the object's descent, the wind pressure thrust that plate backward, which provided a new way of measuring the resistance that air exerts on a moving object. Hmm. Conducting hundreds of experiments like this, Eiffel confirmed that this resistance increases in proportion to the square of the object surface. So doubling the size of the surface would quadruple the wind resistance. And this finding was important in guiding and designing the shape of airplane wings. Huh. That wasn't what I was expecting. Right? In 1909, Eiffel built a wind tunnel at the bottom of the tower. Because, you know. uh, Like you do. So it was this giant strong fan that pushed air through this large tube. Air flowing around stationary objects placed in the tunnel would mimic effects during flight. And this allowed Eiffel to test several models of airplane wings and propellers. Hmm. 
the findings provided new insight into like how airplane wings get their lift but uh like the neighbors were like uh this is a lot of noise and we did not sign up for this (laughs) oh man i bet (laughs) so eiffel constructed a larger and more powerful wind tunnel a few kilometers away and that research center the eiffel aerodynamics laboratory still stands uh Cool. However, today engineers use it to test the wind resistance of cars and not planes. Interesting. While all of these successes alone were like super impressive, his thirst for science also included radio, and that would be the 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 thing that absolutely assured the Eiffel Tower would remain standing. In 1898. That makes sense. Yeah. Eiffel invented uh Invited inventor Eugene Ducreté to carry out experiments from the tower's third floor. His name's probably on there, too. Uh, (laughs) Ducreté was uh, interested in making practical use of radio waves. The electric magnetic radiation is generated um, just as visible as light is by accelerating electrically charged particles. Right. In 1890, the main way that people communicated over long distances was by using telegraph. This device conveyed messages using a special code across the electric wire. Ducreté mm-hmm. became the first person in France to transmit telegraph messages without wires. Ah. Uh, he used radio waves to carry the messages. His first wireless transmission took place on November 5th, 1898. He sent it from the third mm-hmm. floor of the tower to the Parthenon, four kilometers, which is two and a half miles away. The, the Parthenon. Pantheon, sorry. Oh. Pantheon. <laughs> I was like, Parthenon. wait a minute. I, I, Pantheon. I don't think that's there. <laughs> well, you know, to one of those P words. Uh, <laughs> that next year, wireless messages were sent for the first time from France to Great Britain across the English Channel. In 1903, he was still worried his building might be dismantled. Um, so he got, you know, another clever idea. Which was really freaking smart. He reached out and asked the French military to conduct its own research on radio communications at the tower, even paying for all of the army's costs. Oh, of course. That is one way to right? keep a thing. Uh, French army captain Gustave Ferrier worked from a wooden shack at the base of the tower's south- southern pillar. From there, he made radio contact with forts all around Paris. By 1908, the tower was broadcasting wireless telegraph signals to ships and military installations as far away as as far away as Berlin in Germany, Casablanca in Morocco, and even North America. Hmm. Convinced of the importance of radio communications, the army set up a permanent radio station at the tower. To Eiffel's relief, in 1910, the city of Paris was like, all right, fine, you can have another 70 years. So the tower oh. was now saved for another 70 years. And for World War One. Yes, right. <laughs> and uh, spoiler alert. Bet they're glad they didn't tear that down. Right. Uh, within a few years, radio science at the tower would alter the entire course of history. Yeah. Because... Uh, about the same year, sometime in, this, in 1910, the same year, 
the tower's radio station became part of an international time organization. Cool. Within two years, it broadcast time signals twice a day that were accurate to within a fraction of a second. Oh, I have an atomic clock that um, sets itself by radio. Yep. Uh, These and similar broadcasts from other stations... Takes it a while in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) Too many things happening. Yeah. Uh, So these and similar broadcasts from other stations in America, Great Britain, and elsewhere pretty much changed everyday life because now people anywhere could compare their times on their wristwatches with that of a distant, highly accurate timekeeper, which is like, okay, big deal. May seem silly to us, but it's actually... I mean, it's a really big deal, It is. It's a huge achievement during an era when different cities and absolutely different countries didn't always synchronize their clocks and... And that created a lot of confusion with things like, you know, railroad schedules and other time-sensitive information. Now, the time broadcasts also made it possible for ship engineers to determine their position at sea by calculating their longitude. Oh, that's cool. Right? By September of 1914, just two weeks into World War I, it looked like the German army would overrun France. German battalions were approaching the outskirts of Paris. The French army ordered explosives to be laid at the base of the Eiffel Tower. The military would rather destroy it than let it fall into enemy hands. Then, engineers at the tower intercepted a radio message from a German general that was commanding a unit advancing on Paris. He had run out of feed for his horses, the message said, and would have to delay his arrival. Taking advantage of the delay, the French army used every taxi in Paris to carry some 5,000 troops to the town of Marne, about 166 kilometers, or 103 miles, away. Taxis? Taxis. That's where many of the German troops were stationed, and the French battled the Germans there and won. Even afterwards, it was known as, like, the Miracle of the Marne. And although That's cool. The, right? And although the war went on for another four years, Paris was never invaded. Uh, in 19- Which is something right (laughs) i mean especially like looking at london and wow and just it's such a it's such a weird juxtaposition it's like hi uh yeah bt dubs i'll be late because i ran out of feed for my horses and then the french are like to the taxis (laughs) i i just want to be I want to briefly time travel so that I might sit in the room where that plan was hatched right? just to see, like, how are we going to get all of these troops there? Right. How did they not have army transport is what I want to know, right? but whatever. Right. How were there all of those troops in Paris that didn't have any way to get anywhere? And how um, many fucking taxis did they have? 5,000 troops is a lot. I mean, I guess you could fit, like, well, 1914, (laughs) so you're talking, like, what, Model T's? Uh, You could probably fit, like, four or five. They had running boards, though. Yeah, oh, yeah, but still, I mean. I I don't know. (laughs) Right? The whole thing just tickles me. I think it's weird. There there have to be historic photos of that. I'll see if I can find some. Wow. That's 
not what I was expecting. Right? <laughs> uh, in late 1916, engineers at the tower's listening post intercepted another message. This one had been sent from Germany to Spain, uh, a country that actually had not entered the war. The message referred to an agent known as Operative H-21. The French realized that this was the code name for the Dutch exotic dancer remembered as the beautiful spy, Mata Hari. Ooh, I know a lot about Mata Hari. Mata Hari would be a fun one to do. Uh, That message helped lead to her arrest. Complicated. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, from then on, broadcasting from the Eiffel Tower's main contribution to science, what became the Eiffel Tower's main contribution to science and technology. In 1921, the tower's radio station transmitted the first music programs in France. Fourteen years later, a transmitter on the tower beamed France's first television signals from a studio nearby. Hmm. In 1957, satellite dishes installed at the top of the Eiffel Tower Increased the building's height to 320.75 meters, which is 1,052 feet. Today, some 100 antennas decorate the tower's top, which extends it to 324 meters, which is 1062 feet. There was a lot of math involved in this. Um, Even though the tower is no longer a site of active research, the structure itself owes so much to science. I really want to know what happened to all that mercury. Right? Uh, According to a study recently commissioned by the company that now operates the Eiffel Tower, the building concluded that uh, neither extreme temperatures nor fierce winds nor massive snowfalls should prevent the tower from lasting another 200 to 300 years. The... Eiffel Tower and its legacy, like, stretches way beyond what I could fit in an episode. Like, I didn't even touch on the Eiffel's secret apartment. Uh, there was a news That relocated. I know about it. There, there are a- so many secret apartments. We need to do an episode oh, on secret definitely. apartments. Because there are a bunch of weird ones in yes. New York, like inside statues and Ooh, stuff. I love it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There was a newsroom located on the second floor, like with a printing press and everything. Uh, I don't feel like I knew that it was enclosed. Right? Yeah. There's the there's two floors. There's there's restaurants. Uh, there was a time Hitler oh, demanded I... to be brought down, but it didn't get taken down. Um, it's appearance in all forms of art, media. There's like so much that we could spend time on. Uh, it could legitimately have its own podcast. And I checked and there's not one out there just devoted to it. But there, I it hope- seems like there ought to be. Now right. I'm looking at photos because I don't feel like I remember there being an indoors. Oh, yeah. There's restaurants there. Um, oh, yeah. I Yes, I, I see that now. It- and it's so weird because even to this day, there's no... So- storage there so anything sold like all the souvenirs any food used in the restaurants everything needs to be brought in fresh daily like it's oh that's crazy. Nice. um so yeah there's a whole lot and it's it's super interesting to me and i wish that i could cover like i mean there yeah there's so much more um and i hope that i did it you know Kind of proud, but yeah. I just didn't know any of those things. Uh, yeah, I just find it exciting. I, I am always a fan 
whenever art, which is, I guess in this case, architecture and science uh, merge, that's like my jam. Um, and I think it's really cool that uh, I want to say in like, see, it opened in 1889. I want to say in 1893, Eiffel actually quit the architecture firm and then devoted the rest of his life to science. Um, hmm. So that to me is kind of a life well spent where you do a huge chunk of it, you know, as an architect, you know, something creative that you love. And then you achieve a point where you can retire from that and pivot into another passion of yours. Yeah. Um, so it just, it, I, I thought it was, number one, it was very smart of him to ensure that the legacy would be maintained and it would not get taken down. Um, but it was cool because it's not like he was like, I want this to stay because it's got my name on it. It was just, I want it to stay because I think it's something cool and special. And he, hmm. you know, and then for him to put all that time in it and energy and utilize it to create, you know, systems in place and things that weren't there before. And then to also further on other people's work and, just keep going it's pretty cool yeah i i have significantly greater appreciation for it now than i did at the beginning of this i mean i thought it, <laughs> i knew it's it was giant neat and had stories yeah but i've never been i've also to be fair i've been to paris but only like the outskirts um and only on my way to the south of france Mm -hmm. So, I haven't spent any time in actual metropolitan Paris, but fascinating. The, I can't remember what year it was now, but, so the copyright, I think is the correct term, on the image of the Eiffel Tower has expired, so you can freely use images of the Eiffel Tower during the day there is some lighting that was put in for a celebration of sorts that they patented so any nighttime photos or images of the eiffel tower are copyrighted but, but uh, anybody who creates an image is the owner of that um art that is that is a strange I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, so. I need to know more. If someone can explain that particular bit of uh, IP law to me, I am very curious. But that's, that's interesting. I mean, yeah. so many people are taking photos of the damn Eiffel Tower right. all the time. I can't imagine that is an enforceable copyright. I, yeah, I don't. And I mean, maybe for publications. There have been... Now, There, I did read that it is possible that um, measures were put in place to keep the news of such from getting out. But there has been um, just a minimal, and of course none are ideal, but um, a minimal amount of deaths that have occurred from there. Um, there was two that were done during experiments that were being worked. Uh, somebody was testing a parachute. It did not work. Um, that's not funny, but also. Right. <laughs> it's, 
And then yeah. uh, somebody else, I believe, I want to say it was a wind tunnel. Um, there was an American woman that married the Eiffel Tower and changed her name. That I know. Uh, there And there were two, I want to say one was in like 2002 and one was in 2007. I could be wrong on that. Um, there were two suicides. Um, hmm. Death by suicide. Uh, which is tragic. But also That m- is way minimal. fewer than I would have expected. Right. I would have expected far higher numbers. And again, there's some speculation that. It seems kind of hard to jump off, though. Right. It does. Also, I mean, it's not like the Brooklyn Bridge or something right. like that. I don't think. Somebody uh, rode their bike down the stairs and survived, but was arrested. I was going to say, on purpose? <laughs> uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was from the second or the third floor. Um, but still, we're talking hundreds of stairs. Uh, they, yeah, they Ouch. survived. They weren't injured, but yeah, they weren't injured, but they that were arrested. That would vibrate your butt. Right? Um, I hope this person did not have testicles. <laughs> Uh, so yeah so there's some there's so much there's so many little details that uh that i could have put in um but then it would i think you did super a great job because thank you i didn't know any of those things and now i do yay also the apartment is still available to see and they have like a wax figure of eiffel and i want to say the other person in there is thomas edison (laughs) oh visiting him his apartment wasn't a full-blown apartment. Like, there wasn't, there's no bed there, but there is a bathroom and... I think there is oh, now. I think there are actually luxury apartments in the Eiffel Tower because I Googled it and a bunch of images came up. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that, I mean, they could be utterly made-up images. I was um, going to say, I, if that elevator wasn't working, there's no way. Like, that's just too much. That would be a workout. You would never need to go to the gym. (laughs) Ever. Can you imagine coming home drunk? That would be the worst. (laughs) Or the best. It would be one of the two. (laughs) That is true. That is true. Yeah. I think you would just have to, like, every hundred stairs or so, sit down and drink (laughs) half a bottle of wine. (laughs) Right. Install little coffee vending machines. (laughs) Yes. Drinking fountains all the way up. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, that, okay. I like the tower significantly more now. And my, my goal has been met. <laughs> I want to know what happened to the um, scientific instruments, the original ones. I will, I will look into that. I think hmm? some still remain there, just not used. That um, makes sense. But, there are a lot uh, of things that right. do that. Like the pneumatic mail system in New York. <laughs> Which is I, a real thing and very weird. I love it. Yeah. I swore when I grew up I was going to, like my best friend and I we were going to get houses next door to each other and then just be able to send stuff through the... <laughs> um, apparently a person and a kitten have been no! safely delivered. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And I think there have been quite a few cats. <laughs> um, and I Take I think cat, they have largely been 
fine. Just a little cranky. Yes, I say as I am petting the belly of Jack the cat, who is upside down in front of me, as though she has never done anything wrong in her life. Never. I was just patting Ron Swanson on the head. He's just sitting here looking at me like, ugh. Ugh. Huh. Well, do you want to hear about sewing spacesuits? Speaking of science-y things that make you go, huh? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) All right. Sewing spacesuits, as it turns out, is complicated and also requires women. Of course. Yeah. Because we're amazing. Obviously. We should be everywhere. But also because, at least at the time when the Apollo program was starting, women were the only people who really, truly had the skill set and the longevity of skill set to actually be able to meet the specifications for the spacesuit. That kind of makes sense. Let's uh, start with Jean Wilson. Jean's mother taught her to sew when she was seven. And then when she was nine, she was already designing and stitching clothes for her dolls. So, which is not unusual at all um, for the time period, which was the um, late 50s. And so in... By 1969, when she was 19 years old, oh, dear God, Jack, um, (laughs) Jack is trying to, I don't even know what she's doing, but she's going to roll into my lap at any moment, pause up in the air. Okay. So in 1969, at age 19, she became a seamstress at... ILC Dover. Uh, The ILC originally stood for International Latex Corporation, um, but now it's a materials development and engineering firm, and it still exists, and it currently has its hands in everything from healthcare to food and beverage to chemistry to space travel, all the things. All of the things. Yes. Um... And so at the time, Wilson's sister worked at Playtex, you know, like yeah. the bra people, um, which at that time was associated with ILC. And she was making bras and girdles. And she gave Wilson a heads up about Apollo related openings to work on spacesuits for the Apollo missions. Ooh. And it turns out that bra and girdle materials were designed to be sturdy and lightweight and to move with the body. And so the the abilities of the designers and seamstresses who were already there were very helpful because that's the sort of thing that needed to exist in spacesuit construction. Mm -hmm. And so 
at 19, Gene Wilson came to ILC and embarked upon the Apollo mission spacesuit sewing. And there had not been spacesuits made for going outside in space before. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it kind of blows my mind that this 19-year-old right. was part of this. And I mean, she was among a room full of very, very skilled seamstresses. But I love that something she had just always done yeah. was what she did. Um, so the NASA engineers themselves had a pretty specific set of requirements but they needed seamstresses to make those requirements exist in the real world because they could think of the parameters and they could make blueprints of these things, but they couldn't actually make them. Yeah. Um, and so at the time when Wilson came to work there, she had been working at a job sewing suitcases. So, not particularly detailed. Um, but sturdy. She, hmm? But sturdy. Very sturdy. And when she left the suitcase job to join the spacesuit team, all of a sudden her work slowed from like fast production level, sturdy speed to having every single seam being of life or death importance. Like that's it's every so weird. Single. Like arguably every single stitch yeah. could mean that someone lived or died. So on one end it's like, oh, I get a breather, but at the same time, no, I'm responsible for like <laughs> Yeah, I I don't think it's just I think a shift it may have stress. very briefly felt like a breather. Yeah. And so when people came to work as seamstresses for this program, they were all already very, very skilled, but they were then retaught how to sew from the ground up um, to be able to hit these levels Makes sense. of precision. And consistency, so it, that everything's consistent. They're all yeah, doing it the same way. I mean, that is, it's a really intense amount of consistency. So it was very good that... I think I would like that, though. <laughs> I don't think you would like this much. And okay. I will get, I will oh, get no. there. Um, <laughs> once, once you hear the numbers... Oh, God, okay. I think you will nope right on out of this. Because <laughs> I noped right on out of this. All right. Um, so it was a really good thing that... Jean Wilson already knew her way around sewing patterns and making them because she had a bit of a head start in knowing how to read blueprints, mm -hmm. um, which was what she would need to do while she was working with the engineers. And the people who were doing the sewing were also sewing with newly designed threads and many layers of extremely delicate fabrics 
which, as we, uh, as we said, required exacting precision. So, to really, really make clear how important this precision was, here's a real-life example. So, you know how when manufacturing clothing, there are certain sewing tolerances allowed for mass manufacturing, and the higher the quality, the closer to couture, and um, then the closer to bespoke tailoring, the mm-hmm. less room for error there is. Yes. Um, so that tolerance is why you can buy two pairs of jeans in the same size from the same company and one will fit perfectly and the other will be a disaster. Yes. Because Especially in is, women's wear. Yeah, <laughs> because there is an acceptable amount of tolerance or an acceptable amount of error mm-hmm. built into the manufacturing process. Now, for NASA, they didn't have roots within sewing and manufacturing, which I think here was a good thing because they had not tolerances, but mandated systems engineering guidelines. (laughs) And so if you were sewing for NASA, your tolerance had to be less than one sixty-fourth of an inch. Oh, and wow. for clarity, that is less than the eye of a needle. Wow. In either direction. Oof. So none. Yeah, it's pretty much that's... Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so in an interview with the BBC, Jean Wilson said, even if it had 21 layers, the thickness was so hairline, and you would think the fabric doesn't cost that much maybe five or six dollars a yard no it was almost three thousand it was (gasps) literally locked away in the safe wow like wow and so to meet these extremely exacting standards um singer like regular manufacturing grade singer sewing machines were modified so that the treadle that they used would fire exactly one stitch per footfall. So you know how when you're sewing on a sewing machine and you're using the foot pedal, it usually <laughs> yep. like starts the sewing and <laughs> it up? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, this didn't do that. Every single stitch was a single footfall. So every stitch was placed individually on purpose and very specifically. I mean, that's helpful if you're doing the sewing. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's... I can't even imagine. Just So just cutting the pieces, I'm guessing were hand cut. But that's, that's, where, the, that's where the beginning of the allowance oh, yeah. and... There was an entire array of people doing many different parts and i'll get to a couple of them Mm -hmm. um 
that are not just sewing related, but there's so much that went into making a spacesuit that I think cutting it would probably be the most nerve wracking. I don't think so. Really? Because you can fix that. I suppose. Um, but you can't. thousand dollars a yard? Uh, I agree. I can't um, but, and these seamstresses were cutting them out with patterns, just like you would any other right. garment. Um, right, because you can't. Yeah, the stakes are just so high. Yeah. And at this time, they there wasn't a standard. So there was basically a football field's length of stitches in each spacesuit and one stray stitch would trash an entire suit (gasps) yeah high stakes sewing and then once constructed those finished spacesuits were actually now, I've heard two different stories. So in one, they were actually taken to a local hospital to be x-rayed to ensure that no pins or anything else had accidentally been left behind within Oof, the okay. suit. Um, Which makes sense, because pins... Well, it happened. Heavy. Right. That's oh, why. Shit. Um, yeah, I was going to say, every standard operating position or precaution... Yeah start somewhere for a reason (laughs) yep so after reading that in a bbc article i read in an article on gizmodo that went much deeper into the um technical specifications of Mm -hmm. making uh, of the making of the spacesuits and they said that there was a point at which pins were no longer really available to the seamstresses and the highest value seamstresses were the ones who could make perfect joins using only their hands um and because there was an impermeable rubber bladder that was part of the suit you also couldn't stick a pin in it um right well yeah i guess even i mean if you have to be that exact even the if you pull the pin out too quickly or wiggle when you're putting it in and create a gap in the fibers Uh even if it's not a full-blown hole like any oh my okay nope nope, vacuum of space (laughs) yeah nope 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 open out (laughs) and so the gizmodo article said that Instead of going to the local hospital, an x-ray machine was actually installed on the shop floor after a single pin was discovered between the layers of a suit prototype in 1967. Wow. And so I'm wondering if they went from taking them to the hospital to then just having an x-ray machine after that happened. I don't know. And I couldn't find any additional information readily available just using a magnet of some sort be cheaper but they needed to see if you left anything else in it like any bunching any oh my goodness um because it it isn't like you aren't going to see the seams right that is some serious quality control yeah 
And so women who still insisted upon using pins had to check out a numbered set from a supervisor. And apparently bringing extras from home would literally get you jabbed in the ass by a pin if a supervisor found out. (laughs) Um, And these pins that were checked out had to be counted and accounted for going in and going out. So most seamstresses wouldn't be using them. So that was sort of interesting. And it is. Um, and sometimes the stress was so intense that the seamstresses would lose sleep or even break down crying because they knew that human lives relied upon the sureness of their stitches. Yeah. And, like, that is, that is heavy, especially when you do not know. There's no way of knowing. Yeah, there's until... until What's going to happen? It's Mm -hmm. too late. There's no way you can know. Yep. So our pal Jean Wilson was responsible for sewing the torso, arms, and legs of the suits and the astronaut name badges that went on them. And uh, in our planning doc, there is a photo of the seamstresses sewing that I will also put on all of the things. Uh, There were other seamstresses who made boots or custom gloves and the astronauts would come in for in-person fittings because every suit was made to measure for them. So not only were the patterns really like, not only was accuracy really necessary, they were different for every astronaut. Wow. And, I mean, there were two at this point who were going to be <clears throat> getting out of the moon. So, it is slightly... Or getting out of the vehicle, I guess. Right. Um, so, that's not quite as intense as it could be i guess but it's still pretty friggin' intense yeah it seems like a lot and so the gloves were kind of what really blew my mind so joanne thompson who was also interviewed by the bbc specialized in gloves and she stitched custom gloves for each each astronaut and she also learned to sew as a child, like probably every other seamstress there. Yeah. And she had been working as a, in a dress factory before joining ILC Dover. And according to a quote from her from the same article as uh, Miss Wilson's quote, each astronaut had their own molds made from their hands, says Thompson. The palm part had long strips that went through the fingers and attached to the knock part, and there was an opening to the thumb that you would have to stitch around that. And that sounds very confusing. It does. If you have not ever done any sort of construction, I think that would be extremely hard to picture. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. 
I can't explain it any better because it is extremely hard <laughs> to picture. But the gloves themselves consisted of multiple parts, including um, like those accordion-like fabric ridges that made the hands be able to stretch and move. Okay. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had dexterity. Right. He'd be popping seams. Yeah. And that was all put in place by hand. Um, Did each one get the same? Uh. <laughs> no, they didn't. They each got say they individually would have to... specially made oh gloves that were made on forms made from molds of their hands. So they, and I understand how the molds and stuff would work, but at the same time, like, even, so you have the mold of the hand, but you can't get, just from the mold, you can't get what their grip is like like how how their fingers extend and in which oh my god there there's a lab for that (laughs) oh wow all right so to ensure that the suits could withstand the rigors of space travel constant tests were performed the seamstresses would stitch different types of seams and then send them off to a testing lab where they would stress the seams until they eventually tore. Like, that was the stop. It was to see what different kinds of pressure and movement would happen before they did tear, because they would, all of them. imagine how much money was spent on that? I mean, I I just keep going back to the... Money that blows my mind. Thousand dollars a yard. <laughs> I, I know. Um, and then the whole thing shot. Like you, you went mm-hmm. through that whole thing just for them yep. to intentionally destroy it. <laughs> so the women sewing the suits worked on them every day, day after day, even though they absolutely knew that testing would immediately destroy. All of the work that they did. And oh. that work was that precise. It wasn't like they were cutting corners to make prototypes. They were oh my making. Gosh, it's like Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like every day. Every yeah. day. <laughs> and so, again, in that article, um, Thompson is quoted saying We used to make them all day long and knew they were going to be trashed. But we knew a man's life was going to depend on it, so we just kept going. Like, ah, that's so heavy, (laughs) right? And today, ILC Dover is still the go-to for space-related sewing. That is where you go to get your spacesuits and your re-entry. And there's one called re-entry and abort. So, oh shit! Yeah, that like, doesn't. No, thank you. No, um, no. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, and so there. I think there are at least four different kinds of suits, like the standard spacesuit, the reentry suit, one that you might wear moving about in a space environment, and then a planet exploring suit. Um, so those are fun. And I've left a link to their website specifically with regards to aerospace engineering. 
Um, you can also download a brochure for the spacesuits, and okay. I am a little bit unclear who those are targeted who, to. Who? I was gonna say who's who's ordering these things other I don't than know. NASA. I well, I mean, I guess uh, penis Bezos. rockets. <laughs> who knows? That there were articles on the sewing for that too, but I decided to stick with the historic. Yeah, I did not want to take a deep dive into penis rockets. Um, Cock rockets. Yeah. So (laughs) even today, the ILC Dover is still, uh, that team is still almost entirely populated by women. Though as of 2019, at least one man had joined the team. That's cool. I like Mm -hmm. that. Do they... Maybe this is pushing it to, do they weave their own fabric? Like, how? it occurs to me that that fabric, I mean, the fabric in and of itself, if it's, if there's They're one... proprietary fabrics. So I'm going to quickly tell you the general steps of the suit coming together. And okay. the fabrics will be mentioned, but it it and will threads. make sense. Um, I mean, they're they're definitely being manufactured right specifically you can't run into your hands and get it (laughs) um so the construction is called um consent uh concentric suit layers because the reason that the detail had to be so so close was because layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of the suit would Mm. have to come together and they would have to fit really, really, really perfectly together like a nesting doll. Yeah. And so once the suit layers were sewn... They would then be handed off to gluers who would assemble the layers of the suits prior to the final sewing. And this involved layers of latex, mylar, dacron, and kapton. I do not know what the last two are. Yeah, I I know know dacron. Yeah, and mylar, you know, like it's the um, tinfoily, crinkly stuff. Yeah. but, yeah, and those are definitely, like, Mylar, Dacron, and Kapton are all capital letters. Yeah. They are a specific name brand thing. Um, there was also a group of people known as the Dippers, <laughs> who dipped layers of rubber to form the ribbed sections on the spacesuit that allowed for mobility. So, like, oh elbows, knees. Yeah. And those that was done by hand. And there, oh. even though there were precise instructions for doing it, some people just had the touch. Yeah, that's got to be tough. could do consistently usable product. But I don't think that happened very often. That's so, such a, that would be, 
I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, I've, I mean, I've done candles that are dipped it, but it, it just getting the same amount of product yeah. on the, that in an even fashion, like the amount of and factors that go in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the um, the process itself was at least at the time an extremely closely guarded trade secret. Mm-hmm. I assume that it probably still is now because I did not find any other information on it. Ah. Um, but there is an entire book dedicated to making the spacesuit. Um, That's cool. Called Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo by Nicholas de Monchot. By a guy? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... <laughs> It's a French name. I uh, could have said it very wrong. Um, that's right. You don't have a month and a half of Duolingo under your belt. <laughs> I have years and years of German under my belt. Yeah. And a lot of rusty Spanish. <laughs> yep. So, um, and speaking of that book... Uh, according to an excerpt from it, quote, ILC's unique skill seems to have gone beyond these individual crafts and into the delicate art of their collective synthesis. Crucial to this larger success seems to have been the professional respect accorded to and practical collaboration engaged in with ILC's craftswomen. Indeed, some of ILC's most effective engineers, such as Robert Weiss, took weeks of sewing lessons from the seamstresses to better understand how fingers, fabric, and thread interacted to build up the suit's complex assemblies. And the craftswomen were allowed and even encouraged to suggest improvements in procedures and assemblies as they were continually developed. That's cool. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, it seems like there was a great deal of respect. Um, They knew knew which lane they needed to stay in from an engineering standpoint and which lane to just stay the fuck out of because it wasn't I think they recognized... I think like recognized like. Yeah. I, because the engineering skills are the same applicable skills in sewing. And if you know how precise your skill set is, mm-hmm. you can tell that another skill set is that precise. That's pretty amazing. Like, I appreciate that and respect the heck out of it. Yeah, and so a really cool, like, just a sort of add-on to that is um, when the very first space station, uh, oh, hell, what was it called? Give me a second. I will tell you. And you will know because we were all around for it. No, not gonna find it. I don't think. Nope. I'm not gonna find it off the top of my head. 
know it is there. I know you are there. Why don't you tell me what you are? I thought this was going to be a quick hint, but then I forgot the, uh... Ah, there we are. Skylab? Yes. <laughs> Skylab. It was... And I knew it was the simplest possible right. <laughs> obvious name for a spaceship. Um, so when Skylab in 1973 had a heat shield that tore off on Earth, a woman named Eileen Baker with the obvious help and respect of a bunch of men who were standing around her holding this material sewed a new one. That's amazing. sent that shit to space. And oh when it arrived, it worked. That's so fucking cool. And there's a photo... Um, it was a 22-foot by 24-foot piece of material um, made of very thin layers of aluminum, mylar, and laminated nylon. Ooh, she had to sew through aluminum? I mean, it was like foil. So oh, it I was yeah, extremely, that thin. extremely delicate. Oh, my gosh. Like, yeah, I was like, imagine oh, sewing thin, but delicate. through foil. Oh gosh, um, like gold leaf. Oh my god, it'd be like gold leaf almost. Yeah, and so oh there goodness. is a photo of her actually in the process of sewing it she with three badass. people standing around her very, very carefully holding up all of the excess fabric because it couldn't pull. Right. And it, it's just fascinating. That um, is amazing. And apparently this photo is on display at NASA's Johnson Space Center. That's which is really so cool. cool. And like it's so clear how serious business this is because the astronauts who were supposed to go into Skylab couldn't enter because the heat shield broke off and it was dangerously uninhabitably hot. So there they are, <laughs> just chilling, hanging out in space. <laughs> and can you imagine being the woman who was sitting at um, this one's a, a Juki sewing machine, I think, mm -hmm. um, just sitting there on this old ass industrial sewing machine, sewing a new heat shield for a space station. <laughs> that's so great i yeah i love that i and love there's that so, so much, much more so information levels. on all of the fabrics all of the things like two thousand blankets needed to be hand sewn um for the shuttle program like so many different aspects of keeping people insulated and safe from extreme heat and extreme cold and you know the vacuum of space were all in the hands of people who were 
often sewing literally by hand because if the layers got too thick to be manageable by machine, they had to sew by hand. Right. And and it could get thick quickly with all those. I mean, those are he- even even if they're thinnest, they're they're not light. I guess. I mean, yeah, I don't add them together. I don't know how much a spacesuit weighs. I didn't find. There was a lot of that basic information that I'm sure I could Google, but just didn't come up in the research. I really but, wish that respect of craft filtered in everywhere. Yeah. Like that, it's just a, an example of knowing that it's brilliant in two, in like two facets. One, knowing that you could be rocket science smart you can be the best blueprint creator you can have these technical skills but you don't know how to do that and putting an ego aside to be like hi we need to get people that are specifically done this." i mean it shouldn't even be putting an ego aside right i don't feel threatened by a rocket scientist (laughs) but we're women Guys feel threatened anytime. You know what I mean? Like, oh, and I know then. that. You know what I mean? But I um, mean, the then, person who did most of the math that allowed for the moon landing was a female physicist. Right. Um, then the the second by prong, hand, by right? fucking by hand. hand. The second prong of that is yeah. the amazingness of a nineteen-year-old self-taught. Who everybody there? I was mean, mom taught. taught, but I mean, yeah, but not. There was no home taught. Home taught. There we go. That's better. Um, there was no secondary education. I mean, or, presumably there was home ec. Right. I mean, but they didn't go to a four-year college where they just oh studied, for sure you not. Know what I mean, like it was the accessibility of a yeah. position. I mean, you could major in home ec, but she was too young. Right. I'm just saying that it was, it was, yeah. they allowed accessibility to a position. Yeah. How cool is that, that to hire yeah. a 19 year old girl and be like, you're the expert in this? Yeah. Like yeah. that's, like both, both sides of that just make me really yeah. happy. And there was not a ton as far as I could see, but some diversity. There's, Definitely a black woman or two in these photos working Good. on the suits. That's um, awesome. And so and I don't know what the statistics are, but that also made me very happy to During see. that, yeah. It's, yep. and it's progress. I guess to get progress. all of this done, often, like, the engineers and the seamstresses were staying up all night together working in tandem to get these things done. And I I just, I love the respect and trust. Right. And quite frankly, for things like this, it still happens. Like, who do you think makes spacesuits? Yeah. Um, I mean, women. Women mm-hmm. make the spacesuits, and, and one man, apparently. And one man. Um, <laughs> but 
most of the extremely detailed work cannot be machine done right or automatically machine done well and even you, now and that, just having smaller fingers oh yeah um, well and they able- were using long arm sewing machines oh. when they couldn't reach something and they were still that accurate wow yeah amazing anyway so that that just blows my mind and that is at least part of the story of the spacesuit. Um, uh, I decided I to focus it. on the women instead yes. of on the materials because I, love it. I thought their stories were cooler. Yeah, I love it. Ugh, I love it. All right, so I guess that brings us to uh, <laughs> the weekly worst way, way to, to die. die. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, what is your worst way to die this week? Mine is any any form of falling from the Eiffel Tower because I don't like heights. No, me neither. And just being able to watch your impending doom would fucking suck. Like, I'm guessing it goes pretty fast, but still, like, I just... Don't want to go splat from the I Eiffel think Tower. you might pass out at some point. I'm I not sure. Would I would have to pass out before I even got high enough. To... <laughs> I but, mean, yeah. yes, but I mean like sheer speed. But I, I would have to look. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want to climb the thing. Right. I didn't want to climb the Empire State Building, and I have done that thing. I did not want to go to the top of the rock. I have done that. No. World of no. Yeah. Um, my worst way to die this week is being killed by whatever lurks in my building's creepy basement. No! <laughs> yep. Possibly whoever. Whomever. Whom. Whoever. What? Where, yeah. when? Um. Anyway, so both very yes. That and that is that. That is indeed. <sighs> and uh, so do you want to be spooky internet friends? Duh. <laughs> Always. <laughs> you know, travel into dark tunnels underneath our buildings. Um, we are. <laughs> We are Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Tiki Talks. And you can just find us the old-fashioned way at BonesandBobbins.com. Indeed. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. I know literally every podcast says this. Yes. But it does please the internet gremlins, and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us and then be spooky internet friends yes. because the thing is we actually exist as people for real on yeah, the internet so when you become our spooky internet friends you're actually gonna talk to us and yeah. be spooky internet friends with us so, indeed yeah also we just really like morbid souls <laughs> obviously <laughs> and yowling cats yes yeah and on that note Let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Lock your doors. 
And don't run with scissors. Don't do it. No. It's a bad idea. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce.